Hi, my name is Tasneem Chopra, and I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. In today's episode of Strengths Untold, I speak with Dr. Joey Nguyen. Joey is a public health doctor with a background in Vietnamese culture who's grown up in Sydney, attending a public school, then a selective boys' school. And the stories he has to tell on formative identity, coupled with cultural background, expectations from family and community, but most importantly, of resilience of the self. Finding his voice, his space and his calling at a tender age of 12 and magically landing into that role some 20 years later is a beautiful tale to be told. I hope you enjoy listening and learning from Joey Nguyen. You never know, you never know, you never know what is coming tomorrow. Joey, welcome to Strengths Untold. Look, I know you as the, as the you know medical superstar that you are, but what's a good Vietnamese Australian boy like you doing working in medicine in Melbourne in 2021? How did this happen? Was it a seamless trajectory? Were you born for this role? Or did you just land into it in a sort of game of life circumstances and hopscotch? So that's kind of where we're at. It says here that you're first generation Vietnamese born. So you were born in Sydney of Vietnamese heritage. Tell me a little bit about your family upbringing and what that was like. Yeah. So now that I'm thinking about Sydney, it's important to say that I grew up in Western Sydney. So West Side, that's really important. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so definitely I grew up quite close to the Villawood Detention Centre where my parents had spent time at. So you might say that there was a bit of attachment to that area. So I was actually born in Australia, but my brother, my mum and my dad, they're refugees. And my dad actually was previously a university educated training as a priest and then became a medic for the resistance and then had to subsequently flee. And it was part of that intake of boat people in 1982. And at that time, he had left my mum, who was pregnant with my older brother back in Vietnam. And my mum and my brother could only really reunify with my dad in 1992. And I am their reunion child. But you had to think about the fact, <laughs> yes, that... um. My brother and my mum hadn't actually physically seen my dad for eight years too. Wow. And so we basically, you know, initially grew up in southwest Sydney. We actually grew up in a factory. And now the more that I think about it, the more I realise how unusual that is because... What do you mean you grew up in a factory? Yeah, so my mum and my dad, being the entrepreneurial types, tried to set up a clothing factory that also produced cotton and yarn too. Yes. And so I would actually grow up running around in an industrial setting with big machines, big looms, big spools, lots of people doing sewing and ironing as well. We didn't have a backyard, actually. We would play in the car park. And yeah, when the inspectors came around, and I'm only just (laughs) reflecting on this now, the fact that we had to hide all of my school books, hide the bed, made me realise that perhaps we shouldn't have been living there. <laughs> these, are, these are survival stories, aren't they? I mean, it was a survival story. This is what they had to do. Yeah. I mean, like, um, I was really lucky that I went to a really good primary school. And I remember when we moved to a different area into an actual house with an actual yard, my parents were quite insistent with the school that I was able to stay in there, even though I wasn't local anymore. And so I just always remember like, you know, taking that one hour drive or bus trip to that school only because by that time, 
you know, the teachers that had been heavily invested in me. And Is this high school or primary school? Primary school, school yeah. Okay. They were heavily invested in me and just, I don't know, just wanted me just to stay, I suppose, and keep learning there. And I'm really thankful for that because I think from that point, they, alongside my parents, really said, you can do anything if you put your mind to it because you've got potential. Well, can I just ask on that issue, what do you think it is about the ethic of families and parents who have made the arduous journey to Australia and who have gone through what they have as refugees, who then find themselves being entrepreneurial and finding ways to survive and find a decent way of living? What is it about their ethic towards education that you think is so remarkable? Well, I think the fascinating thing about my parents is that they were very well educated back in Vietnam, and that was taken all away from them during the war. So I think there's that need to survive and be resilient, as well as to prove and reclaim, I think, their identity as accomplished professionals. And I think that's been passed on to me as well. We talk about sort of like a Southeast Asian work ethic too. But my parents had never, ever viewed themselves as working class. So I think there's that interesting interplay of migration and class, even though when my dad came here, he was basically seen as, well, you know, a refugee in need of help, of handouts. And I think there's a strong element in my family, at least, of pride in our history and of our family's accomplishments too. And wanting to, I guess, like replicate that and achieve that again. It's important to note that in my family, that my father was actually the first to get a degree in Australia in a second language, English. It's not the usual story that you hear about, say, you know, the first generation kids being the ones who get the degree first. And I think that really speaks a lot, I think, for... It's counter to the perception, isn't it? It really is, yeah. And I think a lot of it was because there was that need, I think, to sort of like reclaim and prove again that we're capable, our family's capable, and we have to set that up all over again. I think that really contributed resilience. That's to say, of course, that, you know, my family is a prideful <laughs> bunch as well, too, I have to say. Well, I was going to say, was there an expectation that you do well because this is just what our families do, more so than you need to do this because of what we've sacrificed? It's definitely, I think, the former and the latter. My parents had always reminded me how much they had to give up. My mum in particular, back in Vietnam, she was a primary school teacher and she was also... So she appreciated the value of education? Oh, all, all, all the time, intrinsically too. And yet she, you know, had to be the one who stayed at home and wasn't afforded the same opportunities that my dad had too. So there was that reminder. And I think when I think about it even more, I think a lot of it is just like showing that you can do it, we're better. There's that expectation for you to perform, which I think for better or for worse, for I think, you know, self-esteem, confidence and mental health has led me to the point where I am, whilst also sort of considering the interesting sacrifices that your family has made to put you in a position where you are and then how you sit with that, with my current privileges. That's quite a feat of self-awareness to come to that point now and realise. So you went to this great primary school. You were supported by wonderful teachers and and clearly a family who wanted you to reach your potential. What was school life like for you? Was it still in the West? Still all in the West too. So my primary school, I was considered quite precocious. I was sort of like very talkative, very sociable. When the teacher was there, I'd be good. 
And when the teacher wasn't there, I was a complete brat. And I had probably learned how to get away with more than I should have had. Has that skill served <laughs> you well in life, Joey? I would think so. A charm offensive, potentially. <laughs> but then again, um, then I went to obviously a public selected school in Sydney, which was, again, a very different experience. My primary school was very diverse, very multicultural, but going to a selected school, it was very monocultural, quite homogenous too. Okay. Yeah. So for that school, I had actually had to go to the north of Sydney. So that was about one and a half hours and two buses just to get Whoa. there. Well, you know, you got to do what you do. You sleep in the bus and you catch up on study okay. as well too. You know, or you listen to, you know, like your discament or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's how old he is, guys. Okay. <laughs> Don't say that. And <laughs> so it was a monocultural school. It was obviously a different makeup of a student body there. What do you think the difference between the environments with primary and secondary school did for you in terms of firming up your identity? Did you feel Australian? Did you feel Vietnamese? Did you feel one before the other or none at all? I didn't know what to feel at that time. There was a school there where everybody looked like me and yet everybody had such different experiences. There were a lot of people there who, I suppose, were much more affluent uh, from an originally professional class. Certainly, you know, had much more opportunity and access than I had ever had. And I suppose growing up, I had never ever thought that people who looked like me would have a different experience like me too. Yeah. So that was for sure. So being there, I don't think I was more or less conscious of sort of like being Australian or Vietnamese. I was more conscious that... I was a Vietnamese person who came from a poorer family, quite frankly. And I think that's when I think the class aspect became much more prominent. I never had a Xbox or a you know game console or anything like that. I never went to any sort of like, you know, I never went on holidays, never went overseas anywhere. You know, I was like on the weekend helping, you know, my dad collect scrap metal as well to, to like make things end up on the side. So I never had those sort of like experiences that I guess people that my peers had had. And I sort of wonder getting there, how much more conscious I became about privilege and opportunity and how people are able to get to good selective schools too. I think that's at that point, I got really confused about, am I Australian? Am I Vietnamese? Because at that time I was trying to first comprehend that there could be such differences in opportunities and backgrounds and histories. And mind you, I was a teenager then. Yeah, so you felt the classism was more of a delineator of identity than, say, your cultural strokes. Definitely. And I think they're both quite closely intertwined too. I mean, my dad at least came on a boat. Because we're talking about the 90s here, aren't we? Yeah, the 90s, yeah, too. And again, I was a teenager, so I, I don't know how big or small my world was in retrospect. I can only probably say that it was just quite a shock for me to realize that I was different. And forming your identity and all those and all those I mean you've got culture, you've got race, there's all the intersectional variables that define who we are that we don't we realize they're intersectional at the time because first of all we didn't know that word existed. Yeah. I suppose we endure those <laughs> factors, but we don't know that it's a thing. That's right. Like I suppose like when I think about it now, being part of like a school where there's a lot of diversity and multiculturalism, you sort of like notice that there is a difference. But when you want to think about more of that subtlety in your background and your upbringing, you have to then compare yourself to people who superficially look like you to suddenly realise the more subtle and complex differences. 
So for like having like the paint swatch of yellow, but then comparing that yellow, you suddenly realize there's like russet yellow, lemon yellow. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that sort of stuff as well too. And I think that's probably where I needed to like suddenly realize I need to negotiate that initially before I started thinking about sort of like my place as a first general migrant and my Australian identity as well too. That's a very deliberate switch from, I guess, drafting your identity from what people's perception is of you to what your perception is of you. So rather than feeding off people's reactions, or oh, you must be, you're a Vietnamese Australian, so you must be X, Y, and Z, whereas you're, you know what, no, I'm first generation Vietnamese. My, I was born here. I've grown up here. I've been schooled here. This is my identity. This is who I am. When did you work out that it's you that sets your narrative and for identity versus responding to what everyone else's dictation was? Oh, so that's such a complex question. I'd have to probably say I first probably felt that agency in my final year of high school when I had to make that choice about university and what I'd do with the rest of my life. And, you know, me, good Vietnamese child, always been told that I should do medicine. But I was also very talkative and very good at English, funnily enough. I was that kid who was also good at history and the humanities and English and art. And I'd always like to say that those were the marks that got me into medicine because I think... Garden variety genius <laughs> sounds like it. Well, I think we can sort of like reflect on sort of like the importance of the humanities when we think about public health. But I probably came to that consciousness because I realised that I had to sort of like make that decision for myself because my motivations can no longer be informed by what my parents were telling me. And I really had to sort of explore a bit more about being seen as a, in some way, having high expectations of a golden child does take its toll, I would say. For example, I did have an eating disorder growing up where I'd be so anxious that I wouldn't be able to eat anything because of all that performance pressure. And Something that I don't always tell people about my journey and my choice into where I am now is the importance of having that space in a hospital when you're being treated for six months for your mental health mm. and your eating disorder, that you have a space to breathe and really reflect on why you're there, even as a 12-year-old. And I think when I think about people in a hospital, doctors, nurses, dietitians, psychologists, giving me that ability just to think and reflect for myself without any expectation about my grades, about where I should be, about my refugee heritage, about my queerness, all of that. You could probably say that maybe it wasn't year 12 where I thought that maybe it was probably year seven. Being 12. Being 12, yeah. A watershed moment. It's funny because when you reflect you think, oh, I, oh, I only realised this when I moved to Melbourne. No, wait, I realised this when I was in medicine. No, I realised this when I was in like high school. No, I realised this. And you sort of like wow. trace that journey back. And it's really hard to like particularly pinpoint an area where you become conscious because you suddenly realise that you've been navigating it this whole time. Now that you sort of give a voice to that and you consciously articulate and map it back to that point, I mean, how does it feel to say I was ahead of my time or god I was amazing or god what was I thinking what are you thinking of when you realize that you had that clarity of mind at such a young age I don't know if I had that clarity of mind but when I look back on it boy it's been a journey and it's something that I definitely have more words for now on reflection so it's definitely been a journey you don't really appreciate until much later 
how much you've had to think and comprehend and negotiate even at such a young age. So, yeah, I, I really, that's something I'm probably still trying to like comprehend. But when I look back on it, like. So much to take on. It's a journey. Yeah. And you don't, and there's no, there's no sort of like, you know, like light bulb moment. It's no sort of switch. There's no playbook. There's no playbook. Yeah. And again, I always think about if I didn't have that experience. Yeah. I mean, it's quite common. I remember growing up saying that, oh, I wish I was white. Like, how much easier would it be if I was white and my parents could let me do whatever I wanted? And now that I think about that, I'm like, no, it's because of that complexity, that tribulation, that hardship. That's where I am at the moment. And for that, you really own that. That's an empowering realisation when it happens, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it was something that was always, I suppose, like in you. But you had to realise it and you had to step into it. Yep, definitely, yeah. And you have to then take that ownership too. And yeah, I'm just very impressed by it. And that's why I'm so impressed with like young people and kids these days with their ability now to like give voice to like issues about mental health, climate change, COVID-19. They have such sophisticated opinions and ideas. Your current work now, you have a background in clinical paediatrics and you've your research into child health and development. How much of that is actually informed by your realisation from a very personal lived experience of the kind of insights that you have as a kid to your well-being, your outlook, so much of that in that moment being defined at such a young age? Do you feel that that association with, I guess, other young children's growth and development is connected? It's definitely. So there's not that many children's hospitals in Sydney, obviously. So there's only a few places that you can go get your training at. So it hit me when I was the doctor in the exact same ward, treating the exact same type of kids. You came full circle. Full circle. The same doctors as well too who treated me. What? <laughs> I know. And it's that and that's sort of like when it really hit me, that's why I'm here. Oh wow. As much as you don't want to say admit that at that time again this was sort of like the early you know 2010s there wasn't that same conversation about stigma around mental health you didn't want to disclose that and so when you're there you finally admit to yourself that it's that time as a patient being hospitalized being unwell is definitely what has driven me to take the path that I am and that was probably a moment that clicked in my head where I had to not so much know or recognize but just admit that that was actually an important part of myself and is a motivation that I can't separate out anymore it's imprinted on my brain that's amazing very few people realize work out what their calling is let alone get to start mapping it out and doing their calling so to speak you're doing that now and now that you're doing your calling answering like you said you're coming full circle answering what perhaps was your inherent drive to start with do you feel that the journey from this point is something that you can map or is this what you expected? Is this beyond your expectations? How, how, what's it like now? Doing what you finally wanted to do, how's that working out for you? I used to believe that there was a map, but I was in my 20s. And let's just say like in my 20s, maybe I was a little bit too confident potentially too. I think now, knowing that I've taken that route already and that there were so many opportunities for all of these things to not have happened at all. A lot of our work, a lot of our efforts in some circumstances is dictated by sheer luck as well. 
So now that I look where I am, where I want to move next, the first thing is I know where I am. I'm in the area now, but I don't really need to have that roadmap anymore because I have these opportunities to explore at my own pace, at my own time, at my own leisure, the things that I want to do. I think I've had to learn, particularly during COVID, a bit more humility about what I can do, what I'm capable of, what my capacity is, both in terms of my physical efforts and my emotion, and being okay with that as well. And being okay a bit more with that uncertainty, knowing that in the past, I've had to negotiate that. No one ever said that I would have known that I would have ended up where I am in Melbourne. I was on the paediatrics track. It was because of, quite frankly, burnout with clinical training that I took a year off. And of course, when you take a year off, the first thing you think of doing on your break is starting a master's degree. I don't know who to blame for that. I just don't know. (laughs) But I think um, for me now, I'm comfortable where I am because I've actually learned, number one, just to be comfortable with who I am and where I am right now. And that any push for myself to prove myself is only for me and should not be imposed imposed, or shouldn't be pressured by an expectation by others to achieve, to be promoted, to be visible, to be public. That I've learned needs to be in my own time and according to my own map. So I could be more visible, more public, but I need to, in a way, take a bit of time. Sounds like you're taking agency back. I mean, this is you're mapping out your journey on your terms. And you mentioned a point just earlier there about humility and making sure that you you know the journey that you have, you don't sidestep where the humility is. And I'm thinking straight away, you're working in the mental health sector as the health professional, as a person with some lived experience in some of the traumas that your patients will be experiencing. How do you negotiate your experience when you're dealing with someone who's going through a current experience without imposing your self-belief on what they're going through? Well, Sort of like when I was 12, people just gave me time and space to express voice. And one of the most important things about any relationship is giving that space, giving that air for people to tell their stories and tell you what they believe that their personal truth is, because that is their lived experience, right? And I can't speak on behalf of all first-generation refugee Vietnamese you know, people. and Why not, Joey? Why not, right? It's not trying hard enough, really. Oh, no, no. Why not? The, the voice <laughs> of a generation, right? I've always said just always be slightly suspicious of people who found or start up things <laughs> in a way or <laughs> claim to, like, speak on authority of a whole group of people too. And I feel like that's sort of, like, such an important approach when you engage with, for example, a lot of, like, young people a lot of children too, having a bit of imagination as well that kids have such incredible capability and agency and interpretations of the world that perhaps we, growing up and becoming cynical, we've lost that imagination and that wonder too. And I think for that very reason, whenever you're with a patient, with a family, you should initially view it as very much a process of storytelling and listening too. That's how I see it. That's a great insight. Yeah. Kids tell stories. They tell stories and they tell stories about themselves. And that's one of the main channels that they're going to express that their lives and their situations. They're not going to respond to a questionnaire. It's on whose terms are you communicating, right? So yep. if they're telling a story, they're communicating what they want as opposed to what you're dictating. You have to have that playing field, like level it out again, you know, 
any impression of unequal authority will get people offside immediately. So if you need to get down on your knees, if you need to brush up on your frozen terminology or your bluey or your pepper pig or whatever, so be it. <laughs> if you need to look a little bit ridiculous to get onto that same level. Put your humility in a bag and just step into their shoes. Definitely. Words of wisdom. Now, speaking of storytelling, Joey, I want to explore a bit about your cultural identity and makeup. So you were born here. Your parents were born in Vietnam. Your brother was born there too. So there is a strong, presumably, ancestral and cultural link. And this is me making assumptions. How much today in 2021 of your identity is tied up in your Vietnamese heritage? It's really fascinating. So I will be always Vietnamese. And whether I realize or not, I've internalized those principles. I think about filial piety paternalism, certainly a bit of Roman Catholic upbringing as well, so hard work, entrepreneurialism. And that also then comes in conflict with my strong sense of like individualism too, and asserting my right to choose as well, and realising that strong family networks aren't just based around blood, but also around kin and friendships too. So am I Vietnamese or am I Australian? I can't answer that anymore, but what I can definitely say is that I don't look Australian and it's something that I need to carry with me when I engage with anybody. And to think that my English is much more stronger than my Vietnamese and the fact that my Vietnamese is as scrambled and as diverse as you'd expect any person in a diaspora, first generation when they're learning a language outside the context of the country where it came from, you really do have to think about your makeup. I mean, the fact is that like, like, I am the only one in my family, in Australia at least, who was born in Australia, and I still am, (laughs) right? And did I go to Vietnam as a child? A fair bit, definitely. I enjoyed those summers too. But ultimately, I am a creature of, of Sydney, of Melbourne as well too, because I wouldn't want to be anywhere else as well. can't imagine it. And how about your family in terms of like their expectations of their good son? I mean, do they sleep well at night knowing their son is finally a doctor? <laughs> I mean, they would prefer me to have been an ophthalmologist, obviously. Oh, <laughs> oh let me have a word with your mother because she should be <laughs> sleeping fine, okay? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it too is trying to explain what is public health? What do you do in public health? Exactly. and I mean, you also touched on issues of sexual health and health promotion for LGBTQI communities. And again, coming from, as you mentioned, a Roman Catholic community and conservative Asian community as well, these are issues that don't really cross the dinner table comfortably, do they? No, it's a constant process of coming out over and over and over and over again. (laughs) Certainly, I think, though, because I am sort of like the good doctor son, I do get a little bit of leeway. Good insurance. Good insurance, too. Again, I don't know what intersection. (laughs) is giving me this ability to do whatever I want and get away with things with my parents. But I would assume that, you know, being a doctor has been quite helpful to them sort of like give me the space to explore. Glad you've been able to leverage it beyond the actual medical part. This is good. This is good. (laughs) Yeah, as well. But I know that inherently that my parents are proud of me too. I think definitely now with COVID-19, coronavirus, they've definitely seen much more visibility about what the purpose of public health medicine is all about too and the importance that we have particularly engaging with multicultural, multi-faith, diverse communities 
and just trying to like really bring that idea of empowerment and visibility in a health response. And again, letting that recognition, that visibility, that story be heard. Yes. And I guess I'm going to ask you a question I know the answer to, but some of the listeners might not. And that is, in what ways do you think your your diverse upbringing informs your work in the public health space when it comes to engaging in a public health context with diverse communities? I think there's a strong realisation and appreciation and then curiosity around an individual and a group story. It's really easy, I think, in public health and epidemiology to simply view numbers because epidemiology is a study of populations. Mind you, it's a study of populations using a, say, colonial Western psychomedical perspective too. And so, you know, I went to university. There will be gaps in that particular metric. There's definitely gaps as well too. And I think having that experience and that appreciation means that you start to understand where a public health response, where a system isn't actually quite built to address those gaps at all because it had never intended to address them because it was blind to it, really. And I can see that someone like you, I mean, what I know of you, Joey, is the personality that you have is that when you see an injustice or if you see something that's off, whether it's the way data's being analysed or the data that's being collected, how it's being used in the health system, if you find that it's problematic because it's not representative of the broader community, you're doing something about it. Yeah. So in my experience, number one, you kick up a fuss because what people are starting to realise now that if you don't measure it, you don't know. And people are always inherently interested in quantifying things because quantifying things. Can you give us an example? Yeah, most definitely. So we do have information, for example, about people's language that they speak at home. But is that their preferred language? Is that the language that they predominantly communicate and receive health information and advice in? Often, a lot of our fields only have one space and only one language. And it reduces all of that complexity down. People could be like multilingual, third, fourth, fifth languages, just down to one. And that's the only information that we have to work off. The other thing that I always think about is trying to measure how people identify themselves as an ethnicity or as a culture. You could try to look at whether you're born overseas or not. You could try to look at your language. Do you speak English or not? But all intents and purposes, when I filled my census out this year, I said I was born in Australia. I speak English at home because it's just me. Can you just imagine all of those first and second generation migrants, generation, frankly, of young people and children who would otherwise be missed in terms of their cultural identity and that diversity as well too. And a lot of our systems aren't as sophisticated to include questions about identity, self-identification, ethnicity, culture, because that's actually quite hard to quantify because for some people, it is subjective. You would have heard with my interview how hard it was for me to simply write down that I am Australian or am I Vietnamese? I don't know. And I think that's a lot of greater complexity that we need to think about when we both collect, but also handle and interpret data. And the numbers themselves are never going to be enough because numbers can't describe your upbringing, your history, all that nuance, right? So you need the qualitative, you need the stories to be told, whether it's written, spoken, performed, created, I don't know. 
that that information is so critical for a public health response too. I think even the argument in that conversation that nuance matters is a newsflash to a lot of public health intellectuals because they're very, very binary. It's like it's, you know, you're either from here or you're not. You either have this condition or you don't. Yes. You either speak this language or, you, you know, it's like, well, no, you can be so many different multiple sort of intersecting, you know, factors that make up who you are, but there's not always room in the conversation to table that. That's right. Numbers don't really deal well with complexity. They're meant to be discrete. You're in or you're out. You know, epidemiology is about categorization. And I'd love your insight, for example, about how we interpret that information when we're trying to put people into boxes. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> well, I'm on your podcast. We can talk about that, Joe. But look, we, we're only running out of time here. And I just wanted to, to, I guess, I mean, I want to talk a little bit more, I guess, your breadth beyond your amazing insights and accomplishments in epidemiology and public health and in children's health. What's the stuff that you do that makes you you? What are your interests and your, yeah, the things that you do when you're not doing Dr. Nguyen? Well, I would say that when we had the opportunity to do so, it was really just getting out there, get out in the sunshine, just being around people and having a great time, obviously gathering in beautiful places, whether that is a forest on a camping trip or a hike or at a swanky bar or at a community festival in St Albans. That is where I need to be. I need to be out and about. And that is where... And having a community connection, clearly. Having a community connection too. I mean, like, I came to Melbourne in a very different context, right? So, like, all my friends here are all, like, nice, fancy people. I like Sydney, right? And... What was Sydney? Just riffraff? What are you saying? <laughs> well, the Western Sydney riffraff, you might say, <laughs> but I mean, you know. Not that I'll argue with you, but okay. Yeah. But definitely being, like, out and about with people, essentially. And... Do I love novelty? Of course I love novelty. I don't do well doing the same thing over and over again, which might explain why I might be a bit all over the place sometimes. <laughs> Work certainly takes up so much of your time anyway. It definitely does, yeah. And I think probably at the moment now, I'm just really appreciating what it means to have time to myself and giving my that space to do that and doing more reflective activity, whether that's like doing much more the portraiture and the life drawing that I used to really engage a lot with as a kid, catching up on my reading or watching really bizarre YouTube videos about why things are <laughs> expensive or how corporations work. Something just to amuse yourself when you can't exactly, when you're not ready yet to switch off your brain in the evening. <laughs> so that's probably me at the moment. Well, it sounds like you keep in a good balance between the intense and the relaxation by doing those things that just help you to zone <laughs> out before you zone back in again to the the high-paced life of working in public health, especially under COVID, it's, it's got to be intense. Joey, yeah, we touched briefly on your Vietnamese heritage and I want to ask a lot of my guests when, who are from a, a bilingual multicultural background, I, mean, I know you're speaking English at home because it's just you, but I am going to press you to ask, you know, how good is your, your spoken Vietnamese? 40%. I'd probably say it's shopkeeper quality. Did you say 40%? <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> what is epidemiological answer? You're giving me a numeric B minus. <laughs> oh goodness me! I don't know. Um, <laughs> I always have this slight sheepishness because my accent is northern. Because my dad was very insistent that I have good articulation and good enunciation, but I speak a lot to my mum 
in Vietnamese and she's from the South. So I use a lot of Southern vocabulary. Oh. So it confuses a lot of people, particularly aunties and uncles here when I have this weird, strange, hybrid, chimeric Vietnamese. <laughs> they should not be surprised. They should yeah. be like, of course, Joey would mix the two. Of course, he'd be a hybrid result. Of course, he would. <laughs> well, obviously, I can't fit your, the fidelity of your Vietnamese. And I do ask all of my guests, I want to ask you two things. The first is, oh, and I'm glad you told me that you were 12 when you had these, these um, epiphanies. But what would you, Joey, now tell 12-year-old Joey back then about what to expect of himself? In Vietnamese or in English? No, in English, in English. Take yourself back to that hospital, to that bed, to that space. Oh, okay. You'll be right. Look at what you've done so far. You'll get through it. You've got that space. You should own that space. And you trust your instincts too. And have a bit more fun. Come on, seriously, you're 12. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I would say to myself. Ah, the the benefits of hindsight, hey? (laughs) I like that. Yeah. I think I'm only catching up with... My fun quota, definitely in my um, mid-20s, really. <laughs> I like your dedication. And look, the last thing I'm going to ask of you is to do a sign-out or a close in, in language, and it could be as quirky or as you know banal as you choose because obviously I can't vet your Vietnamese, but I would just, if you're, if you're comfortable to do it, just, you know, thank you for having me and you know, whatever, good luck. And cảm ơn tất niệm cho con nói nói chuyện hôm nay với tiếng việt của con là không phải giỏi quá nhưng mà <cười> cảm ơn nhiều hôm nay với cảm ơn các bạn các chị cho hộ con đến trong giới thiệu của con hôm nay tốt <cười> sorry that was a bit all over the place but we have no idea but go on I just wanted to say thanks for having me here today I really am thankful and I just want to thank all my aunties and my uncles and for getting me where I am but in a very broken way because I got very embarrassed. <laughs> no, I think that's gorgeous because it's earnest. It's from the heart. It's not scripted at all. And that's what makes it so beautiful. That's how I speak to my mum. <laughs> I think it's lovely. Thank you. Joey Nguyen, thank you so much for joining me on Strengths Untold. It's been such a hoot having you here. And thank you for taking time out of an insane schedule to save the state of Victoria to, to come and speak to me. I really appreciate it. It's a team effort. It's a community effort. And I just want to say thank you, everybody, for what you've done so far to help Victoria get through a very difficult time. So reach out, shout out if you're in trouble, voice up, pipe up, rattle the cage and get, get the, the jab. jab. Yep, get the jab as well too. Exactly. Thanks, Tasneem. Thanks, Joey. Thank you so much. You can search for more Strengths Untold via Spotify, Apple, Google Music, iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, SoundCloud, and almost all the podcast apps that are out there. Please subscribe, review, rate, and tell your friends about Hmm Podcasts. Every share makes a huge difference to us all. If you have any stories that you'd like to email us or contacts that you think would be useful for us to pursue for conversation in this format, please email me at thesneem.chopra at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Strengths Untold. Bye for now. You never know, you never know, you never know what is coming tomorrow.